Hi, and welcome to the second episode of Life in Flux. Thanks to everyone who left comments and downloaded the podcast with Alex Volkanovsky. It was great to see so many people excited about what we're doing here at Life in Flux. My guest this week, Richard Feidler, has inspired me to come up and do this intro in the ancient ruins of the walls of Constantinople, the very walls that kept the city and the empire safe for so many years. In this interview, we speak about his novel Ghost Empire, which is about the Byzantine Empire and Constantinople. We speak about his new book that he He's written with Kari Gislason, friend and author, about their trip to Iceland and about the ancient sagas of the Icelandic people. We speak a little bit about his past as well and family life and his thoughts on radio and podcasting. Thank you again to Richard for joining me and I hope you enjoy our conversation. This is Life in Flux with me, Jesse Begley. My guest today is the ABC journalist Richard Feidler. You will uh, know him as the host of the Radio National Show Conversations with Richard Feidler. The podcast Conversations is Australia's most popular podcast with just under 4 million downloads per month. He is also an accomplished author and he is joining me today to talk about his uh, latest release, Saga Land, that he wrote with his friend and academic Kari Gislason and his uh, 2016 book Ghost Empire. Richard, welcome to Life in Flux. Hello, Jesse. Thank you for having me. <laughs> no problem. Look, so to start it off, Richard, you've released two books of the past couple of years that feature yourself traveling with friends and family. Mm-hmm. Have those feet begun to get itchy again? Yeah. Are there, are there any more traveling sagas? Oh, absolutely. Like, I, I used to go overseas all the time when I was, years and years ago, I was in this kind of filthy scabrous comedy group called the Doug Anthony All Stars, and we used to tour <laughs> all over the world. And then, uh, then the group broke up, and I had kids, and you just go through this long period where it's much, much harder to travel. Now my kids are a bit older, in their, in their mid to late teens, and so I've started traveling again, and of course I love it. I'm absolutely loving it. And, uh, my third book is in the works at the moment, which is going to be a history of the city of Prague which I've got a bit of personal history with from mm. the Velvet Revolution. I was there during the Velvet Revolution. And so so I'm sort of writing it from there and then going back to from the origins of the city to right up the present day. Wow, mm. fascinating. So um, the most recent book, Saga Land, that you co-wrote with your friend, and I'm going to butcher this through the entire interview. That's sure. right. Carrie uh, um, Gislason. Indeed. He's, um, Icelandic is a bastard of a language. <laughs> it's it's really, really hard. Um, I, I, I had to be coached all the time by Kari. The, 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 it's he doesn't mind you pronouncing whatever. They're, normally with Icelandic, the correct way is to hit the first syllable. It took me a long while to realise that too. <laughs> so the, the real way, to, and he'd say I was getting this wrong, is Kauri Gislason. Kauri Gislason. Gislason. But, you know, I'm sure if I was, if he was sitting right here, he'd go, no, that's wrong. So, <laughs> and even saying it makes you feel like some kind of Icelandic strongman anyway. It does, yeah. Kauri Gislason, yes. Kauri, <laughs> I am Kauri Gislason. I will lift your cow for you, yes. <laughs> yeah, and so, and your, it features the two of you travelling around Iceland and uncovering covering the ancient sagas of the people of Iceland and the mysteries of Kari's family lineage. Mm-hmm. So my question is, was this book planned or was this like a mad gallivanting trip between two friends that just had to be shared with the world? It's both those things. <laughs> and uh, it's, it's definitely both those things. Uh, Kari and I became friends about oh, seven or eight years ago or so when he came on my radio show uh, after he'd written this beautiful memoir called The Promise of Iceland. And so it's a very unusual way to begin the friendship is when you read your friend, this, the friend to be memoir first. <laughs> so you read all about them and then you meet the guy. And uh, he and I hit it off very well. We found we had the same taste in books and music and and uh, many other things as well. We both had young families. In fact, we were living at that time in the same suburb of Brisbane, which we just discovered. And we became <laughs> we became friends. Now, I, I think I think when you 
when you um, it's unusual for middle aged guys to make friends. I'm just warning that now, warning you about that now, Jesse. When you get older, yeah. it just doesn't happen very often, if at all. So this is a kind of an unusual thing. And pretty soon after we became friends, though, we decided we want to embark on a project of a kind together. Uh, and I'd always wanted, longed to go to Iceland. I'd always sort of dreamed about it ever since I was a kid, but could never find a reason to go mm. there. Yeah, um, I was you always hoping it's hard to tack it on to other trips. That's right. You know, yeah, sometimes you can do it as a stopover between London and, and New York, but it never quite happened. Never yeah. panned out that way. And he t- he told me um, he was going to go to Iceland at the beginning of 2015. Uh, I said, "Man, I, I want to come with you." So we had this idea we'd make a radio program, and the, and the idea behind the radio program, which became the book Sagaland, was one night we were sitting around and he was talking. As he as is his want about the sagas of Iceland, <laughs> yeah, and and I said, oh yeah, man, the sagas is that like um, that's like Beowulf, isn't it? St- mythical stories of warriors and monsters. Mm. And he went, no, 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 no. That is not the sagas of Iceland. The sagas are the family stories of the first Viking settlers who came to Iceland in the Middle Ages, and these are these are these are not it's not Tolkien. This is about people who really did live and exist, whose existences are recorded in the Icelandic genealogies at the time. So we know they really did exist. Iceland has the most comprehensive family trees of any country in the world, going back to the very first Vikings who sailed there from Norway in the ninth century, and all the way up to the present day. So the sagas are true stories about these people. And is this because, I mean, well, they ha- they've never been invaded, for one, have they? I mean, there's been no real reason to invade and take over Iceland. And- well, it's, no, they've never been invaded, but they have been colonised. Okay. Just, and, and that's that's part of the story of Sagaland, is the tragic collapse of the Commonwealth of Iceland. That, it was a, there's so many similarities, but huge differences to Australia. Yeah. It's once the, the they were, it really, you could say Iceland's the first new world country. It's formed by migrants fleeing a tyrannical king in Norway, Harold the Shaggy, as he was known, <laughs> yeah. uh, later to be known as Harold the Handsome Hair. He's in Vikings, the TV series at the moment. Watch out for him. Uh, <laughs> they, they fled and stole women from the north of Ireland and Scotland and brought them with them to this new land. Uh, just under the Arctic Circle, where it's almost totally dark for uh, uh, several months of the year, and then there's the eternal daylight. And they felt themselves to be right on the edge of the earth. And so they told stories to remind themselves of their links back to Europe and to remind themselves of their ancestors. And they had this kind of a commonwealth because it was like Australia. Once you'd arrived there, there was no point having a bunyip aristocracy. No, I mean, yep. you, were, were you going to be Lord Thor of, you know, <laughs> snafflesness or something? No, it didn't happen that way. So there was a kind of an egalitarian society. And they formed the first kind of modern parliament there mm. in the open air in Thingvatlia, where they, the chieftains would assemble, like members of parliament do now, with a law speaker. But then that got lost yeah. due to Viking infighting. And they surrendered their sovereignty to Norway and then to Denmark. And they existed as this horribly impoverished colony of Denmark for hundreds of years wow. until the 20th century. And these sagas that record the first days of, mm-hmm. of the, you know, of the people the of Iceland. Families, yeah. The first families, yeah. First families. It's... I think I'm so conditioned to search around for the moral of the story, but I loved how I read these stories, and they're just amazing, brilliant, bloody, entertaining stories that don't have the exactly a moral lesson at the centre of them. They just are, and they no, exist. They're very human, and they're not fables. They're mm. very human, and the people in them seem very recognisable to us, except for one critical difference. And this is where they seem exotic to us, these pagan Vikings as they were. And that's all to do with the Viking concept of honour. Viking honour is a really different thing from Christian goodwill, which flourishes and you can make it grow. Honour is a finite thing. 
it's more like a currency. Mm. And there's only so much of it to go round. And you can't earn honor. You have to take it from someone else. And, of course, this is where these, this round robin of revenge killings comes into Viking culture. But in between all that, the kind of the dynamic of that honor, you have the most tender stories and the most truest feelings of, of love and companionship and friendship and fear and everything else about their lives is so recognizable to us. And the only other thing to remember about the honor, the, the honor stakes in these stories is that honor is every bit as important to women as it is to men. And many of these stories turn on where a woman's honor has been forgotten or mishandled or misused, and she wreaks a terrible revenge in order to protect her honor or defend her name. And and sometimes it can lead even to the death of people that she loves the most, like the, the saga of, of Luxdata saga, which tells the saga of Gudrun. Of the three, with the, is this the one with, where she has three husbands? Uh, yeah, four, four in the end. Four, okay. Uh, but, I lost uh, count in but it, yeah. there, there are two, there's two foster brothers and, and her. It's really a love triangle, really. It's Gudrun and two foster brothers, Katana and Botley. And they misuse her. They're just too careless with her. And the kind of wound of love opens up. Between, particularly between Katan and Gudrun. In the end, she engineers the death, deaths of both of them. And at the end of her life, her son comes to her and says, of which of those two men did you love the most? And she says the most amazing thing. She, it's one of the greatest lines in all of literature, I think. Gudrun says, I was worst to the one I loved the most. It's not an amazing thing to say. I was worst to the one I loved the most. And doesn't hasn't everybody felt that at some point? Yeah, but she doesn't say which one. Mm. And so no one agrees in Iceland today. Someone go well, most people, I me included, think she must be talking about Katan. But other people say no, no, she was worst to Butler. So maybe she loved him the most. And this is the thing they they don't tell you what they're thinking or feeling. There's no soliloquies in the sagas, so you have to make up your own mind. They treat you like adults. These stories. You both released a series of four half an hour podcasts. Mm. Through Radio National in 2016. Yes. What when you were writing this book? What did you feel uh, that you didn't do justice to in those podcasts? What else had to be in this book? That's a very good question, and one I haven't uh, one one that we haven't asked before. It's an excellent question. Thank you, Jesse. The the difference is it's got everything to do with the medium of radio and different and the medium of writing books. Mm. Radio, as you, as you know, is much more linear. It's very powerful for, for being that, but it's much more linear. It's this thing happens, then that thing, then this thing, then this thing, and this thing. It's story, 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 and some kind of a reflection or something like that. But, of course, with books, you can be more discursive. You can go backwards and forwards. You can contain uh, a, lot, a, a lot more digressions and fl- flashbacks and the like. It doesn't work so well. You can't flick back in radio. Mm. I mean, I don't really feel like pulling out my mobile and you know having that 15-second rewind to go back too often. I just don't like doing that because as soon as you do, you're out of the out of the, na- the narrative. So radio has this lovely or audio has this beguiling narrative, but it does force you into this kind of uh, linear stream of narrative. But you can you can be more discursive in the books, mm. and, and there was so much more stories, so many more stories to tell as well. Absolutely, and this trip is a very well, it was a very personal trip for for your friend. Both of you were travelling to Iceland based off information he was told by his estranged uh, father, yes. who uh, who gave instructions to his mother to leave his father's name out of his life. Yeah. Because you both agreed to record and tell this story. 
story. Mm-hmm. But do you ever feel awkward or have to take a step back as a journalist because of the, yes. how personal the story was? Well, I, I should probably say at the outset, I'm not actually a journalist. I'm not trained as one either. And I, I don't know if I see myself as one. I see myself more as a broadcaster. But nonetheless, those ethics of journalism do come into play. Uh, yes, there, were, there, was, there was one time when, because we were on a deadline making the radio series, and Kauri does like to let things unfold. The, the enigma you're talking about there is um, Kauri was, never knew his father. Growing, well, he did know his father, but his father wasn't part of his life because his father already had a wife and five kids when Kauri was born to his mother, who was a, a different woman altogether. His mother and his father had been having an affair, and his father didn't want to ruin the family life, so he asked Kauri's mother to keep his name off the birth certificate. So only Kauri and his mother knew who his father was. So this was kept a secret. This is what the promise of Iceland was. Her mother, his mother promised not to give the secret away. But then Kauri thought after he'd reached the age of 27 that the promise had gone on too long and it wasn't a good necessarily promise he had to keep. And in any case, it was a promise that kind of negated his own existence. So he wrote to his siblings and said, you have a brother. And they were lovely about it and welcomed him into the family. And uh, it's a really nice story about he, he he wrote a letter to his older sister, Frida, and Frida rang and said, oh, you've got to come over tonight. I've got to meet you. <laughs> and he came round to the house and he said the door opened and Frida was there and she looked up at Kari. He's a very tall man. He's, he's six foot four. And she reached up, held Kari's face in her hands, and she looked at his in the face and she said, oh, Dad. Yeah. Because the resemblance is that strong. And wow. So they had a lunch. And at that lunch, Kauri's father said, oh, what do you want to do with your life, Kauri? And he said, well, well I want to be in literature. I'm a writer. And he said, well, that makes sense because you know you're descended from Snotty Sturluson. Now, that's a name that won't mean anything to a, a very great many people. But Snotty Sturluson is Iceland's national hero, the greatest of the saga authors. His name is on a beer. It's on a statue. Uh, every Icelander knows his name. He's the guy who wrote the Prose Edda, which is where we get all of Norse mythology from. Neil Gaiman's drawn on him for his Norse mythology book. Thor Ragnarok. You don't have Ragnarok. You don't have Thor, really. Well, you sort of have Thor, but you don't have those stories of Ragnarok mm. without Snotty, who wrote the story in the Prose Edda. In your book, you compared him to if you rolled uh, Shakespeare and Abraham Lincoln into, yeah. uh, into one yeah. person? Well, I think so, yeah. I, I might have said that in the radio, but as I found out more about Snotty's life, he was no Abraham Lincoln. He was certainly a very powerful chieftain and uh, one of the most consequential figure in Iceland of, of his time in the 13th century. But really, in the end, I sort of concluded by looking into the saga that tells the story of his life that he kind of betrayed the, the Commonwealth, actually. And he really, he, as much as anyone, shares the blame for its destruction. But Icelanders still revere him. And, and you know why? It's because he wrote these sagas. Mm, he's yeah. still a giant of literature, and he's still their national hero. He just not only wrote the prose of the Norse mythology, he wrote a history of the Norwegian kings, and he also wrote this beautiful saga called Eitla Saga, mm. which is a story of... Iceland's ugliest Viking who loses his son and it's a song of grief that's uh, it's deeply moving and so beautifully written. Mm, absolutely. Now, going on to one of your earlier works, let's talk a little bit about Ghost Empire as well. Um, in 2016, you released it and it's a story about you and your son travelling from Rome to modern Istanbul mm-hmm. and the history of the Roman Empire moving from Rome to Constantinople, now Istanbul. Is being an actor in your books part of your writing style or is it just the most effective storytelling that you can that you find funny enough my friend Kari actually really encouraged me to do that 
he, he, he teaches creative writing at, UT, mm. uh, at QUT in, in, in Brisbane. And I said, uh, sometimes you, that's what a, a really good friend will do for you sometimes. A really good friend will tell you there's this giant thing right in front of you that you can't see. <laughs> and I was actually going to write a slightly different book. And I was talking to him about it, and he said, it sounds to me like you want to actually overlay this, really. What you really want to do is just write about Constantinople, the city of Constantinople, which is now known as Istanbul. And, and you should write more about you and your son going through it. And uh, with that encouragement. You see, in radio, you know what it is in radio? We're, we're taught not to really talk about ourselves all the time. Mm, yeah. so, so this is really weird for me, always doing radio <laughs> interview, because I, I keep wanting to interview you, you, interview you instead, Jesse. Cause, you yeah, know, sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, because, you know, you sort of make it about the person who's the subject. Mm. There's too many, um, as, you, as you know, there are too many bloviating interviewers who take up three quarters of the airtime rather than <laughs> let the guest talk. Um, so so I, I had to sort of get past that and... and and I suppose write the story of me and my son, who was 14 at the time, going through that city, looking for the ghost empire of, of Byzantium in, in that beautiful city, uh, as a way of helping me make sense of that and make, making sense of having a, a son who was rapidly being propelled out of boyhood <laughs> into adolescence. <laughs> right before your eyes. Right before yeah. my eyes, yeah, yeah. Wow. And because what you just mentioned about, about radio is interesting because it's such a changing landscape with podcasts now added in as well that mm. um, I remember seeing all these interviews that were done in hotel rooms and a very static, very closed off, cold interviews where someone would just ask a question and there'd be no input between the two people mm-hmm. and it didn't seem like a very real, like interviews weren't real conversations that people were happening and that has, um, and that has definitely and conversations is an example of uh, it actually feels like you know two people are in the room with you when you're listening to it. Yeah, well, I think a large part of that is doing the research behind it, and clearly, I, it's really interesting talking to you. Clearly, you've done a lot of research yourself. <laughs> you know what you're talking about here, and you've actually read the books. And you'd be surprised, I'm sure, how many times you do interviews and people go, "How would you describe yourself?" <laughs> or "How would you describe your book?" And they just haven't done the work, or or people who I'm sorry to say this believe in. Uh, I, 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 well, some people like this kind of thing. I don't really. I don't really like shoot the shit type uh, stuff. Yep. It yeah, just yeah, sounds yeah. too unstructured and too closed. Mm. It forgets to let listeners in. And so I don't like that very much myself. I can imagine how many podcasts are out there, three-hour podcasts, that uh, people go, yeah, I can do this. Yeah, I can stay relevant for three hours and be on the ball. And yeah, it's real, man. Yeah. It's real. <laughs> like you just, It's just like fly-on-the-wall stuff. I am that interesting. Yeah, I don't want to be a fly-on-the-wall. No, I mean, you know, even um, uh, you know, the, 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 the trips movies, you know, with, with Steve Coogan and Rob Brydon, Mm. They, they can work, yeah, uh, yeah. because they're extremely funny, and, <laughs> yeah. um, and and even then you have to be careful with that stuff because it's too closed, I think. But radio, I think, is a much more intimate medium anyway. Absolutely, yeah. and so it's it's um, it, 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 you you can't sort of have a well, you ought not to have a closed conversation that forgets about the listener. Mm. So these books are steeped in a lot of history, and I read that you weren't re- the, even though you studied history and political science, mm. it wasn't until you kind of found yourself in the back of a van with two other uh, hilarious Australian scoundrels. Hilarious is strong. <laughs> scoundrels is about right. <laughs> Tim Ferguson and Paul McDermott. And that's when history really seemed to grab you. Tell me about what was happening in your life at this time. Uh, just any chance at any kind of privacy, because there was none. <laughs> like, you're stuck in a Tarago for hours and hours at a time, going between, you know, Geraldton and Carnarvon in WA, or, or Mackay and, and Toowoomba or somewhere like that. Um, so in order just to have some kind of uh, other world you can go into, it, it could have been through novels or through history. Sometimes it was through, the, I was reading the great novels at the time as well, but... 
but but through history was was a wonderful way of doing it as well. I'd always had that interest anyway, mm, and, yeah. and my dad um, my my dad was a a um, working class kid who was self educated, you know, and had a lot of history books at home, and I remember seeing big, uh, heavy hardback historical books on the shelf thinking oh if I can figure out if I can read those one day when I get older I'll know a lot more about what the, how the world works mm. uh-huh. so I, and I, whenever I asked my own dad about history he was always game to have a really good conversation with me and talk to me not as a child but yeah. to engage me as as someone who is genuinely interested. Because I wanted to ask, uh, in uh, Ghost Empire, you mention a lot about coming-of-age ceremonies mm. um, and with and you, and you kind of use this uh, this trip as a coming-of-age ceremony for, son, for you yes. and your son. Yeah. And you mentioned you'd also connected um, through history, which is another great part of it. Did you ever share any of those connections with your father? Uh, yes. Yeah, I had the similar conversations with, and I tried to bring that to my conversa- conversations with my son Joe as well, which was to have that kind of yeah. um, real conversation where you know you're not being told some patronising fairy tale by the grown up, but mm. you have the real conversation, and you don't you don't varnish it either. I think the idea that children should be sheltered from the the uh, you know you know all the, all, all the all the blood and horror of history mm. is, is silly. I mean, there's plenty of that in fairy tales. Isn't there? Well, there's the that series ones. of horrible histories, isn't there? That's a children's book, and I think um, it works off. It delights in showing children, you know, the bloodiest aspects oh, yeah. and the grossest aspects. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, absolutely. I, I think anything in culture has to have an earthiness to it. To have any, uh, if it's going to touch the stars, it also has to get down in the toilet as well, yeah. to some degree. I think. It, I think that things, culture that lacks earthiness, doesn't feel real. Mm. Um, and so, no, you've got to put the mud and shit and blood there as well. Because <laughs> yeah. I think children figure out that uh yeah that shit and farts are very funny from a oh, young yeah, age yeah, yeah and you know? very real too and yeah. uh, uh <laughs> and so I, I sort of spared nothing in 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 the in the historical tellings of that although you know in in telling joe the story of justinian and theodora was was interesting i had to think about that for a bit because uh Theodor- there are stories about the empress theodora and how the performances she would give when when she was essentially a kind of cabaret performer, that's right, yeah, a, a, a performer in the Hippodrome, uh, at where she would do something like a burlesque act, I suppose. Mm. Her most famous performance was to do a parody of Leda and the Swan, where she would walk out to a, to an audience. This is recorded in a book by Procopius, who hated her. So uh, that she would walk out in front of an audience. Naked, wearing nothing but a gold chain, a little thin gold chain around her waist. She would lie down on a, on a slab. Then slaves would come out and sprinkle breadcrumbs on her pubes. <laughs> and then a team of trained geese would be brought in that would then peck out the breadcrumbs, right? Oh, that was okay. her performance. I think I've seen that in Amsterdam's Red Light. <laughs> Very, possibly. Yeah. Very possibly. Very possibly. So when you encounter that, that's a story from the 6th century. Mm. The 6th century, written by a bitchy old historian called Procopius who hated her. You go, well, what do you make of that? I mean, he didn't like her. He was actually quite a snob and a bit of a misogynist as well. <laughs> Nonetheless, there's something so specific about that story. And we do know that she was uh, uh, she came from a uh, she was the bearkeeper's daughter from the hippodrome who who was a prostitute at the age of 14 and and rose up through ranks to become the most powerful woman in the history of of that empire uh, so I, I decided to tell it to him anyway and and uh, put it in the book yeah no and it's fascinating that's a fascinating story in particular um, yeah rallying the whole court around her and mm-hmm. rallying her husband um, Justinian was that yes, right yes that's right Justinian is to, her husband to stay in the city and not to flee and to uh, right. and to to stay, yeah. 
the coming of age ceremony that you proposed for um, for for you and your son to connect the two. I remember. I mean, I'm 27 now, and I think around the age of 19, I had a sudden realization that I was meant to be an adult, and I had not <laughs> known when this transition was meant to happen from being a child to an adult. Do you think maybe like having a ceremony and actually kind of speaking to our children would be a good thing for Australian young people? Yeah, I do. I do. I mean, Aboriginal people have always had these ceremonies for boys and girls to bring them in, into adolescence from childhood. And of course, Jewish people do famously as well through the Bar Mitzvah and Bat Mitzvah. Mm. And, um, and I, I, a Jewish friend of mine was telling me, I was talking with him about this and he was saying, you know, you know the point of a Bar Mitzvah is not to, it's not for the benefit of the kid, even though the kid gets the presents in a party. It's for the benefit of the parents. It helps them grieve <laughs> over the loss of, of this little kid, a kid mm. that I can once pick up and hold and, and tell stories to, uh, and, and, to, and to reconcile them with the knowledge that one day their little darling will be fleeing the nest and going off to make <laughs> his or her own life. And, and I think that's a good thing. And it's also a way of according honour to the kid as well. An expectation, you know. I want you to carry yourself a bit differently now. Mm. I want you to hold yourself, you know, honourably and, and, and as a more responsible person. You, you're going to be accepting more and more responsibility as you, uh, as the years go by now. And, and that'll give you a lot of pleasure and a lot of difficulty. It'll make you a proper adult. I, I think it's a really good thing to do. And of course, that connects these two books as well. I hate to harp on it, but mm. there are so many core elements of uh, father-son relationships uh, between these two books. Has this, and this has just uh, come about by coincidence? Um, yes and no. I think, uh, n- not really. I, I think, um, this is probably going to be really boring for you and your listeners, I don't know, but, but no. I, I, the thing Kari and I realise this too is that the, the fatherhood the experience of fatherhood is the thing that changes you forever and utterly, and it's the thing we wanted to talk about. Both of us mm. did, and in his case too, there was the story of his father who wouldn't acknowledge him for the longest time, and of course that affects the way you become a father. He has two lovely boys, Kari, and of course you want to give them everything you missed out on, mm. uh, and that acknowledgement. And finally, for Kari to be acknowledged was such a big deal. It makes you – there's that word, Ill- illegitimate, mm. and that is how it's it, – that is how you feel. I, I came to understand this with Gary. I was thinking, why would you feel that? You're not illegitimate. Of course you're not. You're a – you know, you're my, my my dear friend, my this beautiful human being. But of course, you still feel like that. Mm. You, you're 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 standing outside the doors of this club that won't uh, recognise your credentials. Mm. Maybe so that's it's, very powerful. It's a, w- a strong word that uh, sends us back to a time, you know, where family we family was a lot more important. You know, and your clan. You know, and these groups that we surround ourselves with. Yes, yes, yeah. that's right. Yeah, and also you project yourself that situation onto your own kids, and you think, oh God, that's too damn sad, isn't it? Mm. Uh, and and there are so many stories in the well the, that saga i mentioned the saga that's the story of the loss of a son and that's the most unbearable thing and our plan was to have Kari tell these saga stories in the locations where they really are said to have happened mm. uh, a thousand years ago in iceland and the various farms and farmlands and fields around iceland and when it came to telling that story which which he told at the farm of the viking Ekansons, a farm called borg he, we told it in a little church there and uh 
I don't know. It was something really incredible. I'd heard the story before, of course, but as he told it, I sort of, I found I had tears in my eyes at the end of it. It's, it's so terribly moving. Such a beautiful story. Mm. So fatherhood was a thing, a thing that kept popping up all the time. And it's in both books. Yes. I, I better, better, better stop bashing and giving it such a, a good old bash <laughs> for the next one, I think. Yeah. No. Uh, and, and, and doing your research for Ghost Empire, did you come across like little nuggets of historical yeah. things like, uh, con- the battle between Constantine and his son Crispus, and not mm-hmm. battle, I should say, but maybe potential betrayal and eventually execution of his son Crispus. Yes, that's right. Yeah, there, there are two, two. Uh, just off the top of my head, there are two big, good father and son stories. There, there's Constantine the Great, who uh, founds the city of Constantinople, that's named after him, which is now Istanbul, as you say, and his his brilliant son Crispus, who was perhaps even a better general than he was. It was even more popular because Constantine was an aloof, standoffish bastard but Crispus was um, was charismatic and liked by his troops and in the end Constantine had him executed because he'd come to believe that he'd had an affair with his wife his son had had an affair with his wife who wasn't Crispus's mother um, and then the story was that perhaps he'd been deluded in that and so in he had his wife executed as well and I think he felt the sting and the shame of that sin for the rest of his life the other lovely father and something I stumbled on was um, the emperor they have these marvellous names his name's namesake Constantine Porphyrogenesis who born to the purple who was a real dogged one of those real dogged diligent emperors who went about the administration as carefully as he could he's a bit of a sad sack he was but he wrote a lovely book for his son on governing the the empire Mm. it was just for a book he wrote just for his son knowing his son would inherit it and then have the taking taking over the empire so he wrote an instruction manual on how to run the empire and it's really the most tender and beautiful document i just love it it's like oh god when the pechenegs come at the gates of the city pay them (laughs) off don't don't muck around with that stuff it's just much better to pay them off these guys though don't pay them off and watch out for this person here and be careful when you do this and it's (laughs) it's 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 kind of really it's it's like a father Wanting nothing but the best for his son. It's lovely. The art of war for ancient Roman yeah, uh, yeah. Roman um, administration mm. dictators. Mm. Yeah, emperors. Turkey and Istanbul today is still very much the gateway between Europe and the East or the Middle East. What do after doing all this research and travelling there a couple of years ago now? What do you think about Turkey and Istanbul in its in its current modern day? Well, I I, I don't. I, I, I certainly have some strong impressions. Um, I'm happy to have them corrected because I haven't spent very much time there uh, in present-day Istanbul. But the, the impression I got was that uh, Turkey today and Istanbul, it's, it reminds me a bit, funnily enough, of Joe Bjorki Peterson's Queensland in the 60s and 70s. This is a situation where a rural hinterland elects a kind of a, a, a dictator that sort of grafts himself onto the democratic system of the country um, that's opposed largely in the big city, which in this case is Istanbul. Nonetheless, uh, Erdogan, who's the current president, the, the tin pot dictator, would-be dictator of um, Turkey, uh, is, is a man who's kind of allowed lickety-split development through the country. Uh, so there are all these skyscrapers you may have noticed popping up all the time across Istanbul and Ankara and all over the place. And this upheaval and this economic growth and this uh, mm. this has created a, a whole lot of money and huge economic growth in, in the country. But, it, of course, it, it upsets the old ways. And so people in the outlying suburbs of Istanbul, in the more conservative rural 
rural hinterland feel like life is now out of balance mm. and and then we need we need to elect a good muslim like Erdogan in order to you know keep an eye on things so he both instigates this change and is the beneficiary of the backlash against it this mm. is what reminds me of Bjorki Peterson when i was there in istanbul there were street demonstrations in um, in uh, Bialto against uh, the restrictions. Taksim Square. Taksim Square, yeah, against the constrictions they were putting on social media at the time. Um, we were spent the day, though, in the historic part in Sultan Ahmed and mm. had no idea that it was going on. It, it, that, that area is so heavily policed. Uh, I think this is the new model. Erdogan is the new model. It's like Putin, mm. Orban in, in Hungary, and increasingly like Trump in the United States. The authoritarian strongman who's a bit of a mediocrity in his own right, governing off resentments and fear of change. Um, it's a pretty ugly spectacle. Mm. And the powers that they've given over to police are, and in dealing with protesters are unbelievable. About six months, six months to eight months after the uh, Taksim Square protests, protests were still going on uh, throughout uh, Istanbul. And uh, yeah, I ended up getting caught up in one uh, while we were in Nevizade. We'd uh, seen the protests going on and kind of moved away from them. And this is a, this is a, in a very, um, it's a tourist area but there were Turkish families everywhere where police ended up pushing back protesters right into this small little street called Nevizade. It has lots of restaurants and uh, bars and everything on it. Went on to tear gas and uh, pepper spray everybody in that entire street. And you had uh, you saw grandmothers rushing inside just bl- being blinded by tear gas, basically. Yeah, I um, love those protesters. I actually yeah. I, I think they're the very best in the country. Those, those the, And they, they seem to be a very, very broad uh, uh, group of pe- citizens, too. Young and old students, working mm. people... Um, uh, religious people, non-religious people. It seems to be a very broad coalition of people um, still uh, still very, very keen on defending their rights and democracy, such as it is in, in Turkey today. Uh, and, you know, for all my complaints about Erdogan, uh, Turkish people are amazing people. They're lovely people. Oh. It's a gorgeous place. I've never been in such a big city and felt so safe. It's, it's like Tokyo. Mm. You know, you walk around and there seems to be... Um, it, it, people mind their own personal space really well. There was a day when I got on a tram and Joe didn't get on time and so I was separated from him. I was <laughs> yeah. panicking and uh, on the tram as it was pulling away uh, and he was left on the platform. He was like, wait for me to come back. And 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 the people on the tram with me were so lovely to me. They said, oh, your son will be okay. He'll be okay. Yeah, yeah. He'll be, I'm sure he'll be fine. You can get off here, then go through the tunnel. You go back and you'll be okay. They, they were so lovely about it. Um, <laughs> so so I encountered nothing but really lovely pe- to people in, in, in Turkey. Oh, absolutely. I, was there. Uh, I mean, I've done hitchhiking around Turkey and I've never been treated, um, especially in the east of Turkey, surprisingly, I've never been treated with any uh, more kindness than oh, yeah, people yeah. walking me to a hotel room, tell me which bus to go on. And suddenly I'm in a living room drinking Tea yeah. in the show, they're showing me around their factory. You know, the other side of thing of the Istanbul that really sh- um, should shouldn't have shocked me, but it did shock me, was just just how how big and energetic it is, mm. and it's full of young people too. Like we'd just been in Rome before that, and you know, Rome's amazing, but. A lot more older people on the streets, less fizz and, bu- you know, less buzz. And then you arrive in Istanbul, you go, oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> now this is like Shanghai. This is like New York. This is, um, this is like Tokyo. This feels like a great, big, gigantic, buzzing, heaving metropolis with all the 
excitement mm. that comes with that. I loved it. Mm, absolutely. Now, let's go back. I want to talk a little bit about your earlier days traveling mm. around Europe with uh, the Doug Anthony All-Stars because you were there. You were in Europe when the Berlin Wall came down. Isn't I was. Isn't that correct? Uh, and yeah, just after, just just in the in the week, a uh, couple of weeks after it had happened, yes. And then in Prague after that in the Velvet Revolution period, yeah. Because I've heard you mention in previous interviews that uh, as a young man, you thought that uh, you were going to be dead by the age of 30. Yeah. What was that like to see almost the fall of communism and the end of the Cold War happening right in front of you? Well, of course, it was thrilling. Um, there's a kind of an, a moment that is kind of it, people don't talk about very much. Um, I was talking about this with a guest on my show the other day who did remember this. Uh, Jordan Peterson, of all people, believe it or not. <laughs> no, I just remember that. Uh, when I was in my coming out of high school, this was the very early 1980s. And this is a kind of period that people have forgotten. Like I say, this is when Ronald Reagan had just been elected president before Mikhail Gorbachev was in the Soviet Union. And so the height, the, the, the tensions of the Cold War flared up right up again. Reagan had a defense secretary, Caspar Weinberger, and that was his name, uh, who said that, you know, maybe a nuclear war is winnable. Mm, uh, tensions quite. were rising really highly. There were dramas that were made like The Day After and Threads, Threads particularly, which kind of freaked me out about what a, uh, a post uh, what, what, what a nuclear attack would look like, what the post-Holocaust landscape would look like. And it just made life not seem like it was worth living. I was living in Canberra. And there was there was kind of rumours going around Canberra. Oh, in Canberra, we'll all be vaporised in the nuclear war oh. because the telephone, central telephone exchange was there, and therefore there'd be a nuke, a Soviet nuke with its with Canberra's name on it, so we'd be fine. And we wouldn't be left to sort of slowly die of cancer in a post-apocalyptic hellscape. I'm actually with that person. I think I do want to get hit in the head with the nuclear <laughs> missile yeah. when it does come. So yeah. that, that's the kind of conversations we were having. This is why punk rock made a lot of sense. Uh, yeah. The kind of nihilistic frenzy of it and the play of it. And it's like, well, why should I go and study for a goddamn law degree mm. when, when, when I can't see the world having any future? Yeah, and then Gorbachev came along, and fortunately Reagan was prepared to actually come to the party in terms of substantial nuclear disarmament. And was that and part of the motivation? Was that part of your mentality in doing this uh, musical group yeah, of yeah, sure comedians? It was. Is sure. it like we're not we're going to die tomorrow? Let's do something we actually love Just to some degree. And um, although by then, by the time things were rapidly starting to improve, by the time our act started going on, on on the road, and it felt like we weren't going to maybe die after all. Um, but it was more like the energy, the the kind of philosophy of punk rock at the time yeah. made a lot of sense, which was make your own fun. We were living in Canberra, and Canberra was kind of laughed at and uh, by by the rest of the country. And God knows I did it myself before I lived there. But Canberra had this great advantage of one being a student town, be lots of having band rehearsal spaces, and this absolute ethic of make your own fun. Mm. Uh, and, being, and, and punk gave that whole anti-apathy thing a real, a real force mm. in a town like Canberra. So that meant there were all sorts of band venues that would just would spring up here and there. Theatre companies would put on their own shows that 200 people would come along to see in a scout hall. So there was this kind of drive to make your own fun and you can do it yourself and an expectation that you contribute as well. So we were the beneficiaries wow. of that. Yeah. And Oscar, in 94, you guys broke up and mm. you moved more towards more uh, broadcasting and... Yeah. Broadcasting platform. Do you ever miss comedy? No. You don't miss it at all? No. No, I don't. You don't no. miss up being I, up on stage? Uh, but I get to go be on stage, you know, insofar as you might have any, one might have any pathetic narcissistic longings in that in that in that regard I, I get to perform on stage all the time um, too often actually probably for many people's eyes <laughs> so I'm always doing live events that about stuff that I really care about and I really enjoy so um, I, I did that for 10 years 
and you know the grip foot reformed uh, a couple of years ago and i didn't want to be part of that it was uh, and i'm glad they did it and it's good luck to them and all that that's all fine but mm. um I, I, no i mean I, I said that was then and this is now i like what i'm doing much more now mm, much more absolutely. now yeah. bringing people in and uh when when conversation mm. started in 2006 this was before the big wave of podcasts that mm. in the world we live in now did you think that people would be interested in hour long conversations back in 2006 i had a very strong hunch they would and so we well yes i did um initially the format we inherited was a lot more like john fain's conversation program which comes out of melbourne abc radio in melbourne and the format was two guests over the hour uh and you'd have a co-host who would have read the book or seen the movie or whatever and they would ask informed questions and then the regular host i.e me would then just throw in extra questions and 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 i ditched that format pretty quickly and just made it me and the guest for an hour and i liked the long form uh the long form of interview presented uh obligations and challenges one was to shape it over an hour and make it work over the course of an hour and make it a kind of a give it a kind of narrative arc um but but i really enjoyed doing that and that's i'd done many interviews that lasted 10 minutes and, and certainly when I started in radio, there was a philosophy that said no interview should go longer than seven minutes. Mm, mm. But, and, and the idea was that people's shrinking attention spans, because that was the assumption that was made, that everyone's attention span is getting shorter. Um, it, w- it wouldn't sustain that. But that was completely wrong. Yeah. Totally wrong. Uh, so many people at home, I'm sure, would be in those interviews a lot more interested in what the presenter and the guest are talking about once the microphones are off, what they're doing that day and different things like that, what they have planned for the next couple of months. Well, you can hear when someone's written a gigantic book about a really interesting issue and they're doing a three-minute interview on breakfast radio uh, and, and it's just it just burns through it and you go, what, what? And uh, yeah. um, so you go, oh, and then you've forgotten it. So uh, I was much more interested in the idea of doing it over time and being able to explore the ideas mm. in greater depth and, and also having room for stories too. Like, uh, you know, I come from a, a family where uh, you know uh, of storytellers and uh, raconteurs and bullshitters and um, uh, and uh, <laughs> I, I love that thing. I love, so when t- someone tells me a really great story, you know, uh, like today I was talking to James Jeffrey uh, from the Australian. He was telling me his story of how he had a pet shark as a kid. <laughs> I'm not joking. He had a pet shark. He persuaded his dad to let him bring home uh, a, a blind shark. That's the species. It's not actually blind. A shark that he found in a in a rock pool, um, in a big rock pool that was about the size of a dachshund. He said. And he wrestled into an esky, and I just don't even know what that involves for a start, <laughs> and, and, and bring it home into a saltwater fish tank. And at night, it would thrash around in the tank and uh, spill over <laughs> seawater. And, and I, you know, yeah, and I, who wouldn't want to hear that story? Yeah. And, and to try and ask him to do that in 30 seconds would be crazy. So uh, whenever I hear a kind of a story like that, there's something about me that sort of make, makes me sit in and really enjoy it. And that kind of that story comes out between two friends when after a couple of drinks, and yeah. those are those moments. Moments that are kind of shared between friends. Well, I, I think so. I think I think um, I, I think this is a, a culture that's a little bit been been lost. Um, I don't want to be oh back in the good old days, but I think I, uh, people of my grandparents' generation, my father's generation, to some degree, my grandparents' generation, uh, pre TV, would have this culture in Australia of storytelling, mm. where you'd sit around uh, and at the end of the evening you entertain each other by telling funny stories and that could be even the story you've heard a few times before you take turns to tell a story and there was an art there there's an art there of being a good storyteller but also of being a good listener mm. as well and 
a bit of competition. Like, you know, oh, if that story is really funny, I better really make mine a killer here. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. And that brings us full circle back to Saga Land because this is how we get the sagas <laughs> of Iceland. People telling stories in on a dark night. Exactly. And just before we move away from this this idea, was it when you were in the early days of conversations, was it harder to learn how to draw these stories out of people or was it harder to learn when to shut up and let them talk and not to jump in with your own words um neither of those things were too hard really Mm. i found um learning to shut up not not um, i'm surprised people don't do it more often i had angela lansbury on some years ago angela lansbury the great hollywood actress british born but hollywood actress you know star of murder she wrote you know mm. but she was also in gaslight she was in the manchurian candidate uh she was a star on broadway blah blah the most amazing woman uh she's the voice of in beauty and the beast as well oh, wow. yeah oh, an incredible woman and she'd hardly ever done a substantial interview that I could find anywhere on the internet. It, the only attempt I'd seen was with <laughs> was with Larry King on CNN. Uh, and Larry had spoken for about two-thirds of the interview. And I was thinking, you are so less interesting than this extraordinary woman. And so I brought her, when she came on the show, I said, what do you remember of your the earliest memories of your childhood in London in the 1930s? And she completely evoked it. She totally could remember what it was like to being in this little terrace house in London and talk about hearing the coal man coming down the street shouting out, go, will, go, will, uh, to going out to Regent's Park with her, her, her grandfather, who was a famous socialist at the time. And, and she could completely paint this extraordinary picture. And it just dazzled me. Why on earth would you talk over that? I mean, <laughs> you, when that happens, when you get this incredible person telling an incredible story, uh, I mean, I think all the best thing you can do is to <laughs> sit very, very still, try not to breathe, and don't distract them because they're playing this incredible movie. They're, 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 there's a movie playing behind their eyes that they're reciting, telling you about, and it's there's a perfection to that. So just let them tell the story. And when those people share those stories, it's for one, it's almost a completely different world uh, mm. than the one that we're living in now. And radio is very good at that. Yeah. Radio is, is far better at doing that than television. It's far more intimate, and uh, it, 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 it does that so much better than any crappy historical reenactment might, I think. Mm. Now, travelling now, you've done a, quite a bit of travelling over your life. What's it like travelling now compared to when you were travelling with Das back in the day, uh, back in the eighties? Uh, well, you know, it's it's. <laughs> I think when you when you're on tour with a comedy group, um, it, it, there are upsides and downsides of that. Going on tour with a comedy group, if you're playing it in, in like the Adelaide Fringe or something for two weeks, you had an amazingly good time. You know, <laughs> you, you you settle in, you get a hotel room for two weeks, people bring you room service, you don't have to get up till midday or something, you can stay up all night, and you don't you're not always travelling. So you get you, you've got friends in a town like that, and you you're hanging out with them, and you're staying out. You're going to see other shows, so that's really good fun. But touring the country where you're in a different town every night, ah, I don't mm. miss that one bit. That's awful. Sadly, it means you you're in on the road half the day doing the sound check, do the gig, drink a beer, then go to bed and do it all over again the next day. So there's th- that kind of travelling, and the, there's 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 two different kinds of traveling involved with that these days traveling i think um for me um i I try to make it as purposeful as possible uh so going with a kind of a a a, a goal of discovering something in mind uh which i didn't have before but that's fine it's that's this is what i'm trying to do now Mm. so yeah traveling traveling is different for me i'm older now too sure uh i i I really i I can do that thing where i stay up till three o'clock 
hitting the booze really hard. I can still do that. <laughs> but like, the hangovers last two days now, man. Mm. I'm warning you, this is bad when you hit your 50s. Yeah. Fit, yeah. Two-day hangover. What the hell is that? <laughs> no one ever told me about that. No one ever warned me about that. It's all like your joints are meant to creak. But no, the two-day hangover, that's that's a bastard of a thing. Uh, so, yeah, that that that's different. Well, look, I better get you out of here. Thank you so much for joining me, Richard. Today. Yes, I've eaten all the snacks. It was such a pleasure. <laughs> look, so you've so tune in to, to hear Richard Feidler on Radio National from 11 to 12 every day, um, every weekday, I should say, to hear the conversation with Richard Feidler. <laughs> All righty. Thanks so much, Richard. Thank you, Jesse. Thanks for having me. Wow. Okay. Well, thank you again to Richard Feidler for joining me in studio. It was such an honour, really, to sit down with him. Such a great interviewer and just a fascinating guy. We'll be back next week with rock photographer Tony Mott, so look out for that one. It's a great interview. All the best. We'll see you next week.